0: This is Baseball Tonight the podcast?
1: This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, October twentieth, two thousand twenty-two, and today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor schwink working from the schwink Studio. Sarah Abbott is working from the Sarah Abbott Studios near Bristol. And I'm Buster Olney. Uh, on Wednesday, we had great games between the Padres and the Phillies in the National League, between the Yankees and the Astros in the American League. The first game was in San Diego, where the temperature is about 91, 92 degrees, and a really bright sunshine that became a factor during this game. Aaron Ola on
2: the mound for the Phillies,
1: and he got off to a good start.
2: Fans on their feet at Peck, go with the towels. 3-2 on the way. Outside corner, and he's gone looking. He painted the outside edge with a fastball at 96, and Nola gets out of the jam.
1: That was the voice of the legend, Book Shambi, who told us yesterday that uh, he was met by a hotel manager as the legend because he listens to the Baseball Tonight podcast. Uh, Taylor, did you see the tweet that we got from that manager? Where he he listened to the podcast, he was like, That was me, that was me.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Well, let me let me see. Cameron Schuler.
3: Cameron nice. Schuler
2: Zero. Uh our friend of the pod here. Very excited that he he saw Boog and shouted him out. All right.
1: After Nola put up those early zeros, Alec Boehm gave the Phillies a lead.
2: The one-o. Swing and a line drive. That's a base hit out of the right center field. Harper racing around third. He's on his way to the plate. Harper will score the throw to third, kicks away racing for second is alec bohm it's one nothing on the rbi single by a
1: the philly second inning rally was built on little bloopers little loopers and the sunshine give a listen
2: and a pitch swing and a fly ball right field chasing back soto Shading his eyes, can't find it, and it gets past him, and it rolls to the wall. In to score, Castellanos. Bohm is up to third, a run in, and it's 2-0. The Sun just blinded Juan Soto. They scored a double. And that rally continued. The pitch. Swing and a ground ball to first. Drury, it knocks off his glove. His only play is to step on first, and with that, Veerling scrambles home, and it's 4 nothing, Philadelphia.
1: So the Phillies, with a 4-0 lead, Aaron Knoll on the mound, you felt like they were in control? No. This is what happened back-to-back in the bottom of the second inning.
2: The 1-0. Swing and a ball ripped. Left field. That one towards the corner. And that one is gone. Just over the wall. It curled over the three forty two marker in left field. And Drury, a line drive homer. The Padres get a run. Back gets 4-1. Here's the pitch. Swing and a high fly ball. That one crushed. Right field. If it's fair, it's gone. And that one will be fair. It's gone. Over the foul pole. Bell with a towering home run. And the Padres go back to back. Drury, then Bell. And it's 4-2.
1: During the course of Blake Snell's career, he's someone who typically has had a difficult time stopping a snowball once it gets rolling downhill. Well, in this game, was very different here was Snell top of the fifth
2: two and two now man at second the pitch and that one is on the inside corner struck him out Rio Muto didn't like the call Lake Snell gets the punch out in the bottom of the fifth the Padres rallied Aaron there goes the runner the pitch Swing and a line drive. That's a base hit out of the right center field. Kim racing towards third. They're going to send him. Here's the throw in. Kim all the way around, and he's in to score. An RBI single for Austin Nola, and the Padres are within a run.
1: Austin Nola, that RBI hit off his brother Aaron Nola. If you guys haven't seen the the Tim Kuhn piece, uh, who sat alongside uh, the NOLA parents during the course of this game. It was really funny, really well done by Tim. So that rally continued.
2: Aaron NOLA ready, the 0-2. Swing and a line drive towards the right field corner. Fair ball and about to hit off the fence. In to score is NOLA. Pro will stop at third. Soto into second. It's an RBI double. And we're starting over. Padres have tied it at four.
1: Soto was a big acquisition at the trade deadline. Josh Hader was another big acquisition. One that went under the radar was the addition of Brandon Drury, who was in the lineup for game five.
2: And the pitch. Swing and a line drive. Base hits center field. Profar is in. Soto on his heels. Cronenworth will stop at third. Brandon Drury delivers. Padres lead at 6-4.
4: Yeah,
1: and I meant the fifth inning. Uh, he had a, a plate appearance there, obviously, in game two of this series. The Padres extended their lead in the bottom of the seventh.
2: And a pitch. Swing and a high fly ball drilled left center field. That one way back, and that one is gone. Way out of here. Left center field, Manny Machado. And the Padres add on. It's 8 4 been about a
1: month and a half since Josh Hader allowed an earned run. He blew away
2: the Phillies in the top of the ninth inning. Hader at the belt. Kicks, steals. Swing and a miss. Struck him out. And the Padres have evened this series at a game apiece. Hader strikes out the side, and the Padres win it 8-5 the final.
1: Our friend Alden Gonzalez spoke with Brandon Drury right after the game.
5: Hey, Brandon, four-run comebacks in this stage of the season are very rare, hard to come by. What did it take for you guys to come all the way back and pull this one out? Yeah, we just had to grind that one out. Facing a tough pitcher like Nola,
2: uh, you know, we, still, we always believe in each other. So, uh, huge win, especially against a tough team like that, against Nola, and on to Philadelphia now.
5: You had the first at-bat coming off when they scored four runs in that inning. You ended up hitting a home run. What was your mindset going into that? Were you trying to make
2: something happen there? Yeah, of course. I you know, got down 4-0 quick, and I was trying to get a big inning going. So he left the fastball over the middle, and I just took a good swing on it.
5: For you early on in this postseason, I know maybe the results haven't been there like you want. Anything that you found in your swing that sort of got you going today?
2: Uh, I felt pretty good today. I, also, I, I felt pretty good this postseason. I hit some balls hard and had some good at-bats, and I haven't had much luck. But uh, I feel good, and I'm just looking to build off that one today. How you
5: feeling tied up at 1 going back to Philly now? You
2: know, we're confident incredible group of guys that really believe in each other so we're all real excited we just
1: got to go one game at a time here's philly's manager rob thompson speaking about aaron nola probably missing his spots a little bit um i thought he battled pretty well but we got to the fifth inning there and you know it was just a lot of hard contact uh and then he got machado and i decided to go to brad because it's probably the best matchup we got coming out of the bullpen so to try and end that inning right there and unfortunately little slider got away from him. Here's Padres manager Bob Melvin talking about how Blake Snell hung in there after that ugly second inning.
2: Yeah, that was not our cleanest inning in the world, and it seemed like everything that was hit was soft-served on him, so that can be really frustrating, and at times it feels like it's never going to end. So you make good pitches, that's all you can do. You keep the ball off the barrel of the bat. Sometimes you're going to get unlucky, and you know the sun and everything else ended up being a tough inning, but recovered really well. Uh, and, and pitch great after that, which sometimes can frazzle you a little bit. Did not
1: every year after teams end their respective seasons, we find out about the injuries that the players are working through. For Jose Ramirez, third baseman for the Guardians, been playing with a torn thumb ligament. He's going to have surgery on that to fix that. And we learned from Jerry Depoto, Seattle's president of baseball operations, that Julio Rodriguez broke his finger during their series against the Houston Astros. He and some teammates, Cal Raleigh, uh, Jesse Winker, Andres Munoz, they all need surgery as their season comes to a conclusion. The Astros and the Yankees playing game one in Houston. Uh, And, of course, the Yankees had to play three games in three days, or what was it, three games in four days in three different cities, they beat the Guardians on Tuesday in Yankee Stadium. And then last night, after flying to Houston, they took on the Astros. And early on, they looked good. Aaron Judge making a play.
0: Want to know the count? And the pitch to Bregman. A swing and a ball, line to right center field. Judge over dives and he made the catch. The throw back into second, not in time. Both runners get back, but a sensational catch in right center field by Aaron Judge. Early
1: on, the Yankees hitters were really pushing Justin Verlander, driving his pitch count up. Harrison Bader was one of those guys.
0: 2-2
1: and a swing and
0: a high fly ball. Left center field and long gone. Almost to the base of the train tracks as Bader has done it again. What an October Harrison Bader is having with his new team as the Yankees take a one nothing lead.
1: That was, of course, Dan Schulman on ESPN Radio. Yeah, Harrison Bader, four homers in this postseason. Verlander, however, bounced back. He stabilized after those early
0: struggles. And the one-two, and he did. He went around on a ball down and away, and Justin Verlander strikes out the side, and he has struck out five in a row overall.
1: In fact, he would wind up retiring the last 11 hitters he faced. The last of those was Matt Carpenter in the top of the sixth inning with runners on base.
0: Three and two on Matt Carpenter with two down and the bases empty. Pitch on the way, and he got it. Threw him what looked like a slider down and in. Strikeout number 11 for Justin Verlander.
1: Yeah, so at that point, the score was one to one, bottom of the sixth inning. Clark Schmidt had come into the game in the fifth inning. He's one of the Yankee relievers that Aaron Boone has turned to in the aftermath of a bunch of injuries, and the Astros took advantage.
0: Now the 0-2 pitch to Guriel, and this one is hit well. Deep left field and into the Crawford boxes for a home run. And the Astros take a 2-1 lead.
1: Jeremy Pena has had a tremendous rookie year in the big leagues. That continued in the bottom of the seventh inning.
0: 1-1 is a swing and a tower. To deep left field and gone. Jeremy Peña gives it a ride, and it is four to one, Houston.
1: The Yankees threatened in the top of the eighth inning. They cut the lead to four to two. They got a couple guys on base. Matt Carpenter at the plate. Ryan Presley on the mound.
0: Carpenter trying to cut into the two run deficit. The two two pitch, swing and a miss. Back to the curveball to get him, and that will retire the side.
1: Here was the call in the top of the ninth inning.
0: Leslie the set, and the O2 is swinging a ground ball weakly, hit up the middle. It hits the bag, bounces to Altuve, and he throws to first to end the ball game. As the Astros take Game One by a score of four to two,
1: and they will play Game Two later this evening. Aaron Boone, the Yankees manager, talked about Matt Carpenter's struggles. With runners on base in Game One of this series, Carpenter, of course, was just activated off the injured list after coming back from a broken foot.
2: Tough matchup, right? I mean, you got obviously Verlander, who's actually you know tougher on lefties, as great as he is, um, and even Presley there. So it's a tough draw. Um, You know, hopefully hopefully valuable for him to just get some regular at-bats within the course of a game that, that serves him and us well kind of moving forward. We know what he pr-
1: can provide for us off the bench or when there's those DH starts for us. So, um,
2: you know, hopefully, you know, a tough night is something that can, can benefit us moving forward.
1: Here's Matt Carpenter talking about Justin Verlander.
2: He's really good, you know, and, you know, obviously I you know, hadn't played in a while, but, you know, I'm not going to stand here and, and make excuses. Um, you know, he made some pitches and, you know, honestly, the way he threw the ball tonight, I mean, I could have I could have played for the last two months and it had been a tough day. You know, I mean, he threw the ball really well. You got to give him some credit. Um, you know, I mean, me personally, I think the, the one that I'm most upset about was the last, um, last pitch I felt like I could have done something with and just missed it. But um, overall, I mean, they, they pitched us tough. Um, they threw the ball really well, you know, everybody.
0: Here's
1: Astros manager Dusty Baker talking about
3: Verlander. He's not only physically strong, which you can see, but he's mentally strong. I mean, he's this, this guy is, you know, he has mental toughness. Uh, you know, when he's down and out and look like you got him in trouble, I mean, <clears throat> you know, this guy he can, uh, you know, he can dial it up.
1: Here's Justin Verlander. You know, as the game's going along, um, you know, you just gain more confidence as you start making better pitches. And uh, once I started being able to execute my pitches the way I wanted. Uh, I feel like my confidence just kind of built upon that and was able to, I feel like they had the momentum early as an offense against me, but I felt like I was able to kind of bring it back on my side and, and, and uh, just kind of keep the pressure on them once that happened. And uh, thankfully our boys came through with some, some big hits and um, the bullpen did their job like they usually do. And uh, that's how we win a lot of ballgames.
2: Taylor, what else you got? buster nba season underway teased brian windhorse in the hoop collective yesterday another one of our great podcasts is the low post featuring zach low one of the smartest guys covering hoops out there he's coming to you multiple times a week this year and there might be a couple surprises early on the season check him out the low post wherever you're listening to this podcast right now
1: you can now stream the most mlb games on direct tv without a satellite dish yes call one 800 directv or visit directtv.com sign up today claim based on total games carried on sports networks sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package for the ones who get it done Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions plus Their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Eduardo Perez is an analyst for ESPN. He's working the American League Championship Series on ESPN Radio, and he got up early for us today. Eduardo, I really appreciate it.
6: Oh, you got it. You know I'm an early morning guy, not as early as you, but. At least I can say that I get up pretty early.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, you know, you get up early, not as early as me, but you stay up really late. I don't even know when you sleep. <laughs> like, I haven't figured that part out, right? Like, I mean, I'll get my solid four or five hours. I think you get like an hour of sleep a night.
6: Well, last night it was maybe around two thirty, three 3 o'clock in the morning that I went to sleep. But I'm, I'm ready to go. Sun's yeah, up, see- I'm up. It's it reflects your personality
1: too that you do have like an adrenaline problem after games, right? Like you, our broadcast will end on Sunday night baseball at eleven o'clock, and it feels like that you know you you're still going up a high at like three in the morning.
6: You, I, I mean, think about it. Pinch yourself. What we do, um, I have yet to grow up, so uh, I get really excited about about the games that we we call. I get excited about baseball, period, and then you have to sort of process everything that went on and the things that could have been done on either side to get an edge. And then also what could have been done on our side to get an edge as well.
1: Yeah. Although this round, it's probably exhausting because you know, you got to carry Dan Schulman on your broadcast. (laughs) right? You've been there. You understand. You get me. Right. Exactly. Uh, it, uh, of course, we're kidding. Dan is uh, one of the all time greats. All right. So you saw Justin Verlander last night. Speaking of all time greats, a future Hall of Famer should be unanimous selection. First time his name came up, comes on the ballot. And part of the reason why he's gotten to this spot is you know, beyond the the great stuff that everybody's seen through his career is his ability to find a way in games in which maybe he's not so great. What did what'd you see in him during the game last night?
6: I saw three innings of Justin Berlander, the, begin, the first three innings that, that he was struggling. He was struggling to be able to get the swing and miss. He was struggling to be able to, to locate his fastball in the zone early to try to get chases. And, you know, it, this is this is a guy that, that goes out there and battles and competes, and he knows that it's a fastball, it's a slider, it's the curveball that'll work. But he's mainly been fastball slider this year and then all of a sudden the curveball was the one that was working until – that's until, you know, Bader uh, takes him deep. But 22 pitches in the first inning, 23 pitches in the second inning, and 21 pitches he threw in the third inning. I mean, Mrs. Morales, my math teacher, would have told me, that's not a good start, right? But he was able to settle down. He was able to stay in the game. He was able to give them length. He was able to do what Dusty Baker told us during our manager's meetings. Is he, along with Fran Bervaldez this year, were able to consistently take care of the bullpen. Make sure that they didn't have to throw a lot of innings so then he could have at least pieces for games, if it's three, four, and five of the series before his rotation came back up. And that's exactly what he did. Six innings of solid work started striking out guys, used the slider and the curveball. He found them. And that's how Justin Verlander has survived his entire career. And he's gotten better with age. He's changed. He's evolved. And I just think it's it's amazing to me that he was able to go six. He was at 92 pitches after five. And I looked to my left and I told Dan, he's going one more. That's all he needs, one more, and he'll leave with his head up, up high, and that's exactly how it was. And they got him two runs in that bottom half because he rewarded his team with six, and they rewarded him with two blasts in sixth.
1: You know what I loved about how he got to the finish line, too, was the byplay that he had between, you know, he and his veteran catcher, Martin Maldonado. When Carp- Matt Carpenter was at the plate, the last plate, the hitter that he saw, uh, they were clearly having a disagreement on what pitch selection was. And Martine goes out to the to the mound, and they have a discussion, and it was pretty eminent uh, animated. Um, and I don't mean to suggest they're like yelling at each other, but they both had strong beliefs about what should take place. And my read on what happened, I didn't see that uh, Verlander addressed the question along this line afterward. My read on it was that Verlander, as great as he was, deferred to Maldonado's choice of throwing that slider you know, on that last pitch down and in because as soon as he struck out the carpenter, he, uh, you know, celebrates for a moment and then he points at Maldonado like, great job, buddy. Tell me if, um, did you read it the same way?
6: I read it exactly the same way that you just described it. You know, it was, he went out there and you could tell, I love the part that the cameras also had Maldonado walking back towards the plate. And I know Martin really well. You know, I managed him in in international play. I sat with him before the game, just asking him questions. And he goes, dude, my head today, I've got so much information going on right now. I've looked at so much video. I've studied so much of their tendencies and swing path. And I think that's what caught my attention when he said swing path. Because one thing is that, look, this guy's not hitting this pitch really well right now. Another thing is, recognizing the swing path of every hitter and knowing and, and knowing what their holes are and deficiencies and when carpenter was up it was curveball after curveball it was fastball they showed it but the slider was the interesting one they're like okay so that that sequence i want, I want you to check that sequence out it was fastball for a strike at 93 and then it was another fastball out of the zone at 94 curveball now he's down 2-1 so what do you do with him now? So he comes back with another curveball, 2-1. I thought it was I thought that was the really cool part. Then the slider makes it 3-2. Doesn't chase on the slider. Didn't hit a spot from the get-go. Most likely, Verlander's thinking, I go with the number one right here, or I can go with the number two and get him, because that's how we had gotten him before with the two other strikeouts. He had struck out already on the slider in the first at-bat and the fastball in the second at-bat looking. I can probably seek another fastball by him. Martinez stuck to his guns. The only disappointing thing in this all, in all of this, and and I had this conversation with uh, with our with our producer Rob, and also with Dan, is why weren't the fans standing up in that moment? They should have recognized this was it for Verlander. They did not. They stayed sitting down. Yeah, they cheered afterwards, but that's a point where you're like, come on, let's get up. Martine's walking back. Gets the slider, but the facial expression of Martin gets the chase on the slider. Verlander justified. I felt that's my guy. That's why I have him back there. This is why he's not an overpaid guy, even though he does not hit well. He calls and controls the game, and Dusty Baker loves him behind the plate. Yeah,
1: you know, and I know that you know a lot of the folks in my industry uh, were speculating uh, that the Astros were going to go after Wilson Contreras before the trade deadline to upgrade their offense, there was no chance. Like, behind the scenes, when you talk to the Astros people, they're like, no. And that doesn't mean that Wilson Contreras, you know, couldn't have helped them in other ways, but the pitching is the priority for a team that led the American League in ERA, and, and that uh, was reflected in what happened again yesterday. Another thing, I just want to make this point about Berliner. It's always impressed me about him. He uh, has tremendous. I think you agree with me. Or competitive arrogance, like you can tell. Justin feels like you know what? I'm gonna beat you. He's. But on the other hand, he has this great mix. Eduardo, I've seen him in post game interviews. Have been in clubhouses where he's lost. He totally owns it. Like he's not one of these guys who makes excuses. You can see him uh, thinking through as he gives answers. He'll tell reporters. You know, if I'd made this choice differently, if I'd made that choice differently, I could have done better. I think he's very self-aware. very self-reflective. And so there's this great humility beneath that competitive arrogance, which is how I think he's gotten better during his
6: career. I, I kind of chuckle because someone said, well, he in the postseason this year, he's got a 13-5 ERA. And I'm like, so what? You know, it really doesn't matter. It's I think that actually ignites him a little bit more. That pushes him for the greatness that he's been his entire career. Um, There's a reason why he's still pitching. It's because he's passionate about it. And there's a reason why he rehabbed his elbow the way he did at the age of 38 and has come back and been so strong. Um, He's evolved as a person. He's evolved as a player on and off the field. And um, this is... This is the best we're seeing of, of Justin Verlander. And now with that elbow, the way it is and the shape it is, and still the strength of the shoulder. Buster, how long is Justin Verlander going to pitch through? Because it's not yeah,
1: yeah. Nolan Ryan is his hero in life. He wants to emulate what Nolan Ryan did. Like be a power pitcher right to the finish line wow. until he breaks down. And, and that I, I really believe he's going to get to 300 wins.
6: Wow. wow. So he's got he's he's going to end up getting he's going to end up doing those Advil commercials, too. Right. As as <laughs> yeah. And and, and
1: uh, yeah, 100 uh, percent. You and I would agree that, you know, that the choices for Aaron Boone are maybe not as great as they were at the beginning of the year when they had Chad Green healthy, when they had Michael King. Uh, yeah, and then at the deadline they got Scott F. Ross. He's not available anymore. Zach Bridge's not available. Aurelius Chapman went a wall. He's not around anymore. So essentially, Boone is choosing between guys, uh, now and making his selections about who's going to pitch what innings with guys who theoretically should be like the Yankees' tenth best reliever, eleventh best reliever, twelfth best relievers. They've had to be uh, promoted into situations where they wouldn't normally have pitched. But even within that context, you feel like that there probably could have been better choices in uh, game one of this series.
6: Yeah, and, and that was the tough part, you know, with, with what Booney did. And it was the fifth inning, you know, where, you know, we had this conversation. Let's, let's, let's take it back a little bit. Uh, before the game, you know, Dan asks some great questions to Booney. And I think it has to do with the relationship that they've had and, and, and understanding the job that Dan has done to study uh, the Yankees. We had them in the ALDS, so we've seen a little bit of the tendencies. And we, what I love about working with with such you know great um, broadcasters, like you know if it's, if it's Carl that I've done it this year because of our relationship, if it's Dan with our relationship also as well, we talk about what we're going to ask in the meetings before going in, and just to, to see if they go the same way we're thinking to debate it. And it was interesting where they're like, hey, look, Clark Schmidt's going to have to play a big role. And if he comes in, it might have to be inheriting some uh, runners and then probably throwing another inning to try to eat up. So that's exactly what was happening. Clark Schmidt comes in as scripted.
1: Scores one-to-one at that point. Scores as as one-to-one. Scores
6: one-to-one you know? and, and I mentioned that I said in the radio, I think you have to read the room here. Um, I thought it was a position for Clark Schmidt that maybe it was a little too big for him. But Dan had asked me, he goes, what do you think? Is this the lane? And I said, well, they're going to walk Alvarez intentionally. That's one hitter already that he doesn't, quote-unquote, that he faced by walking him by putting the four fingers up. Bregman, um, uh, and then he he walks him intentionally. Bregman then walks on a really good at-bat. Yep. And I thought the pitch selection was great. I thought you had to try to get Bregman to chase, even though he had had over 80, I think it was 87 walks during the regular season. You have to, you cannot throw him a hanging slider. He executed that slider, except Bregman executed it better by taking the walk. And then with the next hitter, Tucker, you're like, okay, this is, you got Trevino already warming up in the pen. He ends up going 2-0 and throws a two-seam fastball outside corner. Tucker pulls it. They get the double play. Innings over. And as soon as the innings over, I look, that last out was made. Clark Schmidt emphatically got emo he got emotional. He was done. He checked out. And that's where I was like, okay, read the room. That's where you have to pull him. My personal opinion. That's where you're going to have to then, as a as a manager, understand that the analytical point of view says lower leverage inning, next inning, I could probably get by with Clark Schmidt. But emotionally, Clark Schmidt had done his job. He can finish on a high. He was as, he didn't know what part of the dugout to come in after his fingers were checked. After his hands were checked <laughs> by the umpire, I followed him all the way into the dugout. He was like, Do I go towards Boone? Do I go towards my teammates? because he was that emotional goes towards his teammates gives a high fives and I'm like he has to be done instead he goes back out there and yeah. as soon as he goes back out there Buster we know we knew what happened third pitch home run yeah O2 two slider. Inning, another home giving run. up a home run on an O2 slider yeah a hanging O2 slider it's it's human it's it's the part of the human side of it that one has to understand. And a lot of people ask, well, why didn't he control his emotions? Clark Schmidt has been developed as a starting pitcher. He hasn't been developed to come in in a reliever in a high-stress situation. And when he does and he's successful and he shows that emotion, take him out. Yeah, Take him out. I've just seen it too many times. I've sat in too many dugouts. I've watched too many games as a kid. I've listened in on too many veterans having conversations about it, and that's one of the things I learned. And I think it it really surprised me that he was still back out there for that sixth inning.
1: And he had some options of some veterans. You had uh, Castro. You had uh, Lou Trevino you could have brought in uh, for that next inning. I Castro. That's the guy you bring in
6: for the next inning, Castro.
1: Not Trevino because it's
6: a lower leverage, lower the order. You bring him in, that's where you bring him in. That's the lane.
1: Yep. Uh, I don't see this series going beyond – I think there's no chance it goes beyond six games. I think this is just too big of a mountain for the Yankees to overcome.
6: What do you think? You know, I think tonight it will be the biggest game for the Yankees. Everybody's like, oh, well, it's a seven-game series. Look, we saw, we saw what San Diego did, right, in, in, in San Diego. They, had, they came back from a 4-2 deficit. They ended up winning that ball game, and they knew that that was a huge game for them. Um, they want, you know, at least try to bring it back home or if not try to at least get three, which I think will be re- very difficult in Philly. The Yankees going 0-2 home, one, forces them now to know that they have to come back. to they have to force it and come back and win it on the road in Houston. But the pitching of Fran Bervaldez, he's been solid all year. And I know that the Yankees have done well against left-handed pitching, most of their lineup is a right-handed lineup except Anthony Rizzo. Graham has that two-seamer and that cutter, slider, you can call it, in on righties that has been nasty all year long. They're too deep in the bullpen. Dusty Baker flexed his muscle yesterday, showing it. Um, offensively, they continue to win without Jose Altuve producing. But it's been, it's just a really deep lineup that there's no time to come up for air and i think the 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 key component has been jeremy peña he was against the seattle mariners by extending innings twice to make jordan alvarez a star and guess what yesterday 3 for 4 mccormick two hits two big ones a home run and a single they're getting production from their young guys as well
1: yeah no, no doubt about it and i you know, uh, next time I have you on, I want to have a conversation with you about the Astros' culture, which is obviously exceptional because they've had this incredible turnover with their uh, within their organization from the general manager on down, and yet they just keep on rolling. I do want to. I I have a fun game for you to play in just a moment, but I uh, just want to ask you real quick about the National League Championship Series. Yeah, the Padres come back in game two, being down 4-0. As this series moves to Philly, do you see one team or the other having an advantage?
6: Oh, man. You know what? Because I don't.
1: I I think it's a coin flip.
6: I think it's a coin flip. I really do. I, I do believe that Philly playing at home with their crowd, can they repeat the emotions of what they did against Atlanta? I think that's important in Philly. But San Diego showed me a lot in New York during, yes. that, during that series. I mean, during the wild card, they showed me that they have grit, that they they don't want to go anywhere. They're not intimidated by playing on the road. No, nope. And their pitching, you're as good as the pitching you have on the mound. And they'll have Musgrove on the mound. I, I, I just – they're good. They're deep. They're a solid team.
1: And they're really comfortable, Eduardo. They, uh, you know, before uh, the third game deciding game against the Mets uh, just before the start of it, you know, I got a chance to interview Juan Soto about what his approach was going to be in that game against Chris Bassett, whatever he said, wasn't the thing that stuck with me. What stuck with me was it felt like his heart rate was 45. Like (laughs) he was in such ease. And I felt that with Machado and I felt it with other players. So um, i'm with you it's a coin flip the phillies might well win you know they're playing well and we're going to hear from paul and in a second about uh you know what has distinguished the phillies in his eyes but you know we'll see what happens all right uh, we got two minutes left i want to play a game musical chairs among the elite shortstops in the offseason market i'm going to give you a name you're going to tell me where you think they're going to play next year
6: okay Oh, wow, Buster. Really? I'm ambushing and, you with this. I love it. Yeah, you said we've got two minutes, so I'm eating up time. Right now, we've got like, like a minute no, 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 30 no, no, seconds. No, no. This there is a veteran move on my
1: part. Dansby Swanson, where does he play in 2023?
6: Oh, man. Oh, you started with Swanson. I'm going to say he plays in Chicago. Wow, that's a total surprise. Okay uh
1: carlos correa where does he go baltimore no okay mike elias of course head of baseball ops for the orioles was with the astros when they drafted correa so uh that that would be an interesting connection and it would definitely move the orioles up in terms of how much money they're spending xander bogarts
6: xander bogarts ends up back in xander bogarts ends up in atlanta (laughs)
1: <laughs> I could hear you waffling Boston, Atlanta, Boston. Oh, he's going to wind up playing Atlanta. All right. And the last one, Trey Turner.
6: Trey Turner ends up, he ends up right back in LA. Wow.
1: Okay. You know, I love the fact that our answers would be completely different because uh, it reflects, I think a lot of the uncertainty going into the marketplace about who's going to wind up uh, where. But It's going to be a fun game of musical chairs, and I'm sorry that I ambushed you with it.
6: No, I'm you not. did, you did, but it's genuine. I, you know, it's the, the beauty of it is I said Chicago, um, for Dansby, but I never said which one, so I think that's the best <laughs> part about it. <laughs> See, I assume the
1: Cubs, but now, now I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you. <laughs> All right, Eduardo, thanks for
6: doing this. You got it, Buster.
1: Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. Nexgard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. That's code BASEBALL. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Zero,
2: zero,
5: nine, six.
0: This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs.
1: Sarah Langs, a reporter-producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great, Foster. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, Eduardo and I were just making fun of our colleague, Dan Shulman, uh, and talking about how Eduardo has to carry that broadcast because Dan isn't any good. Well, Dan had some thoughts about you. Give a listen.
0: Every time I think of Sarah, I have a smile on my face because Sarah always has a smile on her face. I don't know that anyone loves baseball more. And I don't know that anyone I know is genuinely a nicer person than Sarah Langs is. And she has helped me a lot. Uh, over the years, in with baseball analytics, uh, I'll send her this like panicky text in the fifth inning of a game. I'm doing a Blue Jays game, and I'll say, "Hey, I'm trying to find out this and." In like three minutes, she'll send me back the link and then I click on the link and I use it on the air and it, and it's awesome. Or even if it's something I'm just trying to learn on my own away from the broadcast, uh, she'll walk me through it. She'll say, no, you got to do this and put this in this tab and put that in that tab. And it's, it's like having your own personal analytics professor, uh, at your disposal whenever you need her. She's wonderful. She's accommodating. She's even gotten on the phone with me a few times for like 30 minutes or 45 minutes to help walk me through things so i can get up to speed so she's a she's a wonderful person a wonderful sarah you're a wonderful person um and uh, i'm so glad i have gotten to know you and i hope to see you at some point in october you are truly a, a treasure to everybody in the baseball community
1: so sarah as i was listening to that uh, after dan said it i was wondering about like your setup because i'm thinking you know i text sarah all the time and i'm guessing carl ravitz probably texts you all the time i know you listen Tell me about the setup that you have in your place in terms of watching the games. If there are two or three, four games going on at once or during the regular season, how are you uh, processing all of this, that you're seeing all of it happen?
3: Oh, my goodness. First of all, thank you so much, Dan. So very kind. I love that he mentioned he is great with baseball savant. He has learned it. He knows the links, he knows where to go, and I love that. And it was so much fun helping him with that. Now, to answer your question, I have a monitor up where I'll put up like a four box on MLB.tv and have multiple games going. And then I have another monitor if I need more. And uh, just generally trying to have as many games up as possible. There's an iPad involved if needed, all of that. And then, of course, you know, just on my actual computer where I'm working, uh, having a box source, keeping up with everything and making sure that I'm aware of anything that's happening. But then we get to the postseason and there's one game at a time. And I'm like, well, I don't need all of this setup up right now. But, you know, again, in April, it'll be very helpful.
1: I must tell you that uh, I can't, uh, you know, at ESPN, they, as you know, they have all these uh, screens up and they're like six games going. I can't stand that. Like, I I can't focus. My brain works in such a way, I think, that I can't focus on more than one or two games at a time. Like, I need to focus and then someone to go, oh, my God, did you see that? And I'm like, no, I didn't because I was locked in on this game that I was watching. I don't know how you do that. People who watch multiple games because it drives me crazy. All right. Uh, let's play the numbers game.
3: Number three. Number three is 100. So Josh Hader yesterday for the Padres to lock up a comeback win. Very exciting for the Padres. He recorded the first 100-mile-an-hour strikeout of his career. Now, we talked about this in the wild-card game on ESPN You know with our Sunday baseball crew. He hit 100 miles an hour in that game, the wild Card game, for the first time in his career. So now he has thrown six 100-mile-an-hour pitches in this postseason. He had never hit 100 miles an hour before in his career. He had thrown 5,769 pitches entering this postseason. He never hit 100.0. Now he has done it six times again in these key situations and he struck out eight guys in a row. I think the note is a little silly because it's over the course of multiple games but it is incredible. He has struck out eight batters in a row. Number two. Number two is three. So Jeremy Pena last night had three extra base hits. He became the fifth Rookie in postseason history with three extra base hits in a game, along with Carlos Correa in 2015, Evan Longoria in 08, Jacoby Ellsbury in 07, and Jim Gilliam in 1953. So the last rookie to have three extra base hits in a game was the exact guy who Jeremy Pena replaced on the Astros. And I feel like we've talked so much, especially during this postseason, with Pena hitting the home run in Seattle, about how incredible that pipeline has been for the Astros, the fact that they lose Carlos Correa, and they still have another great shortstop, and this is just another example of that. Number one. Number one is 15. So, in the ALCS last night, the Yankees struck out 17 times. Of course, Justin Berlander very much on this game with the strikeouts. And then the bullpen came in, same thing. The Astros struck out twice. Jamison Tyone did not report a strikeout. We know yeah. the Astros do not strike out very often. 17 strikeouts to do. That 15 strikeout difference was the largest in a game in postseason history. And I love this. The prior largest was 14. 1968 World Series Game 1, Bob Gibson struck out 17 guys, and Denny McLean had three, and then two relievers had none each. So I love when there's a strikeout-related record that isn't from this era, and then it gets broken. I just thought that was incredible.
1: As you were talking about the disparity between the Yankees and the and the Astros and strikeouts, it occurred to me, and what popped to mind was a number that I know you know. Uh, game 7, 1960 World Series, the World Series that was ended by yes. Bill Mazeroski's home run. How many strikeouts did these two teams combine for?
3: The only game in postseason history without any strikeouts. Both teams, no strikeouts. I mean, how
1: crazy is that? Like in a 10-9 game and back and forth. And yeah, that that is unbelievable. All right. So I completely uh, ambushed our friend Eduardo Perez with the question about the upcoming Hall of Fame, excuse me, the free agent class among shortstops, uh, you know, where each one of them would land in a game of musical chairs. Uh, He had no advance notice on that. You did. I sent you an er, an email this morning said, I'm going to ask you about this. So yours will have reflected in some preparation. I'm going to throw a name at you, and you tell me where you think this player is going to wind up and why. Uh, We'll start with Xander
5: Bogarts.
3: He's the one where I didn't really have a, a market for him. But what I did do is kind of think through where these guys rank. And I think he is probably fourth on the list when we're talking about Gray, Trey Turner, Dan's B. and Dander Bogart. I was not super um, encouraged by some of the underlying stats on his StatCast page this year, not hitting the ball as hard as he had been. He has been this player who's been kind of underrated in Boston. Over the last few years, which is an impressive beat. Uh not something we used to really see happen in a market like that. But you know, I'm I'm obviously thinking of the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Braves, and I don't know if I'm missing the fourth big market, but
1: Phillies potentially the
3: Phillies. Yeah, the Cubs,
1: uh, Red Sox, you know, potentially needing a shortstop.
3: I don't see him going to the Yankees, Dodgers, or Braves. So maybe I'll say Phillies here or Cubs.
1: Well, and let me make clear on this. It is so unclear that to actually get this right all four would be kind of crazy, like something you wouldn't have a, in Vegas. I think Bogart's going to wind up with the Dodgers. Here's my theory on how this will play out. First off, I think you agree with me. Andrew Friedman, head of baseball operation for the Dodgers, never pays sticker price. He waits for values in, in in elite players to come down in the marketplace. Mookie bets he trades for after the Red Sox put him out there. No other team was really interested in picking up Mookie for one year, paying him that price. They wind up getting him in a, in a you know in a trade that now feels very one sided in terms of talent that moved, and they get him on this contract while it had a big number, huge deferrals. Um, so my theory is is that the Red Sox will focus on Devers. They're not necessarily going to take a big jump in their offer to Bogarts, and Bogarts kind of going to be sitting out there and for one year, excuse me, for a, a first year with the Dodgers, he would play shortstop and then be able to move around, you know, to other spots as Justin Turner graduates into a different stage in his career. So that's my theory. I've already had someone with the Dodgers say, "Yeah, that's not happening," <laughs> but anyway. That, that's my theory. All right, next name I'm going to throw out to is Carlos Correa.
3: So I expected him to sign with the Yankees last offseason. I know how Yankees fans feel about 2017 and whatever else, but I think he is the best shortstop on the market amidst all of these names. When he is healthy, he is the best combination of a bat and defense. I think his defense kind of stands above that of all of the others other than Dan B. Swanson, but I don't think his bat is in the same sort of league as Correa's. And I always expect the Yankees to get the best available player. I know that other than Garrett Cole, they haven't really done that over the last few off seasons, but I always I always expect that. But I also wonder about the Phillies. I mean the way that they're competing in this postseason, I I see so much momentum for them, not just in the postseason, but sort of as a market, as a franchise, as somewhere players are going to want to go. And I do wonder if maybe the Phillies could be another option there.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think if the Phillies... The next big dollars they spend need to be on somebody who's good defensively. And yes. Correa is really good defensively. He's better than Turner defensively. I think that's fairly clear. Mm-hmm. So maybe you change my mind on that one. The one thing I'd say about the Yankees and Correa, that only happens if they're unable to sign Aaron Judge. If suddenly an mm-hmm. owner, I don't, would you agree with me on that? Like, yeah. I don't see the Yankees re-signing Judge and signing Correa. That, I just too many super expensive guys. Uh, all right. Speaking of Trey Turner, where you got him going?
3: Yeah, so you mentioned the defense that was really on display in that game where they got eliminated, and again, Trey Turner, great player, all of these guys, really great players, and his bat is undeniable. The defense is definitely the question. He had one really, really good defensive year, I believe 2018, but other than that, he hasn't been notable defensively. And I think when you're looking at these long term lucrative contracts, that's what sort of separates him from Correa Um, in terms of being at the top there. I was wondering if he might end up back with the Dodgers, but of course, we've already put Xander Bogarts there. And I don't,
1: and and sorry to interrupt, I just don't think Andrew Freeman is going to pay top market you know top of market prices on anybody and and Trey Turner's in a position to get that kind of money
3: yes and so I wonder I mean I still think you know not to get ahead that Dan V. Swanson will return to the Braves but if he doesn't it's got to be a Trey Turner and you know I don't know how that will play out but I don't know. I always think of Trey Turner in the NLEs. I know he hasn't been there in a year and a half now, but I think that the Braves are very familiar with him. But I also wonder, because most of their contracts have been these pre-ARP contracts, so we still don't know what they're going to be willing to pay for a guy like this in this situation as opposed to Michael Harris, Spencer Schreider, Austin Riley, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, I love this. It's so much fun, the conversation about the shortstop. I agree with you. By the way, you jumped to the uh, Dansby Swanson answer. I agree with you. I think he's going to go back to Braves. All right, Sarah,
0: thanks for doing this.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Jumping into the numbers. numbers. This is Himbo Knows on Baseball Tonight.
1: Hembo is Paul Ibikini. He's a researcher at ESPN. He's the head honcho on the show Get Up, or at least that's what he told us. And he is the dad of two babies. And we love hearing all those stories, Hembo, uh, about your little girls before we start on the podcast. I would say this: my mom said to me as you were asking the question, you're like, I don't know if other babies do this as much as our girls do, or you know, do they cry as much as this one? My mom said to me many, many years ago that everyone wants
5: to hear all the time that their babies are totally unique yes is that true <laughs> yes of course it is true the the problem if we're even to call it that is that like the uniqueness is just multiplied by two so like yeah. i don't know if they're more or less fussy or more or less happy or more or less poopy i just know that there's two of everything and so in, in some sense it's obviously an amazing glorious blessing but there are very few times during the day where neither of them are making a sound. So you're always checking in and out. So I spend most of my day like looking at them, looking at my screen, looking at the TV, watching the game, whatever, whatever. But uh, look, I mean, they've brought enormous luck to, to all of my Philadelphia team. So uh, what I can definitely say is the girls are doing a great job since they've entered this world.
1: Yeah, and they rank 1 and 2 in everything. There's no question about that. 1 and
5: 2. That's a, yep, on the top and, of every power You know,
1: and yeah, and I'll leave that to you to decide the 1 and 2, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It varies
5: by hour. It varies by hour.
1: Exactly. All right, so you are a Phillies fan. You would be uh, you know, watching this anyway because you're a baseball fan, but you're really locked in. Uh, tell me what
5: we can learn from the Phillies Padres National League Championship series. Yeah, Buster, I want to go high level on this. I think we can learn three things in particular. One, we can learn the value of ownership that for the last five years has been committed to winning at all costs, literally. The Phillies have increased their payroll by $133 million over the last five years. The Padres by $117 million. Those are the two largest jumps in the National League over that time. The second thing we can learn, Buster, is the value of a true superstar in his prime. All of this was triggered in that two-week span in 2019, when Manny Machado and Bryce Harper both signed as free agents. Now, we know that mega contracts historically have been bad investments, but both of those guys were 26 at the time. And so not only do you get that kind of uh, prime production, but you also get that Tom Brady effect where other players want to come play with you. You recruit other players to come to those cities. They're sort of full, uh, force multipliers, for lack of a better term. And the third thing we can learn is obviously the extraordinary value of the trade deadline. I mean, obviously, Juan Soto was the headliner. But Josh Hader has been a revelation this postseason. Brandon Drury was great yesterday. Even Noah Syndergaard and Brandon Marsh and David Robertson have been difference makers the last couple months for the Phillies. I mean, We're one year removed from Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler being massive difference makers in the postseason for Atlanta. I'm obviously not telling you anything you don't already know. But the the, the aggression by both front offices, both the Phillies and the Padres, both pay dividends and I think go a, a long way in why these teams are in this position.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. And I know Red Sox fans will, you know, sort of wring their hands and talk about Dave Dombrowski and say, you know, all he does is spend resources. He's pretty good at identifying players, you know, and through the years, he seems to have a sense of the moment and for picking the right guys. I, You know, a trade that really embodied that for me was when he uh, traded for Doug Fister from the Seattle Mariners when he was running mm-hmm. the Tigers and Pfister turned out to be a terrific pitcher for them. Um, he, he, he definitely seems to have a feel for fixing spots. And I like the fact that he's open-minded. So when he looks at his team, he's not going to say, yeah, we well, you know, our team is great. Our team is perfect. They went out and improved their defense, you know, during the course of the year from uh, where they were at the beginning of the year to now, I asked this of Eduardo, I'll ask it to you after watching the first two games, do you have a strong sense of the Phillies or the Padres having a distinct advantage moving forward
5: in this series? I do not. Uh, this to me is a like the definition of a coin flip series. I guess traditionally, yeah. the fact that's so funny. That the, that's exactly you, the phrase that Ward and I use. You're
3: like, <laughs> coin
5: flip. who knows? Because for, because for every point, there's a counterpoint. Obviously, the, you know, the Phillies winning one in San Diego, it theoretically means traditionally that you've stolen one. Uh, but at the same time, you feel the F- Padres have to feel really good about their starting pitcher in game three in relation to ours. And the fact that in games four and five, the Padres' bullpen, which is deeper, will probably have a big advantage because they will be pitching on no rest where the Phillies will likely be decimated in, in that sense. So I, to me, you could go any number of ways. This is just going to come down to like that weird inning yesterday when the Phillies hit a bunch of bloopers and scored a bunch of runs. The Padres hit a bunch of homers themselves. Playoff baseball is just so unpredictable. That's why the Padres and Phillies are playing in the postseason. I would still give the Phillies a slight edge just because they did steal one of those two games, and I think there's more high-end talent on that team. But I'm afraid that Machado and Soto really woke up yesterday and those are guys that can carry a lineup all by themselves.
1: If we can't define the National League Championship Series, I think we can fully define the American League Championship Series in terms of there being a favorite. What do you got on the Astros, quote unquote, ownage of the Yankees?
5: Oh, the Astros own the Yankees, Buster. The Yankees are batting 151 against Houston this season. That is the lowest average for any team against any team in the history of Major League Baseball. Buster, in those games. In which Houston is uh, six and two. Astros pitchers have thrown eight hundred and two pitches with the lead. Yankees pitchers have thrown thirteen, and all of them came last night. Wow! Look, we we know we know that they are in the postseason. Teams are at an advantage when they can win multiple ways. When there's more than one way to skin a cat. So in their matchups this season, they have an even home run differential. Each team has hit twelve home runs, but Houston has put twenty seven more balls in play. So by no means do I believe that small ball wins. But I think the Yankees have only one path to win, while the Astros have many. All right.
1: I think I know who this is, but you have a title here on your subject. You want to talk about the defining picture of his
5: generation. So I think there were times, Buster, over the last several years where you could say the answer to that question, uh, who's the defining picture of this era? would be Clayton Kershaw, uh, probably the best regular season pitcher we have seen in the last, I don't know, 50 years. Like He's been unbelievably good in the regular season. There have been times in which you could say the answer to that question has been Max Scherzer. But Buster lurking behind both of them at times and popping his head out on occasion has obviously been Justin Verlander, who popped his head out yesterday once again with 11 strikeouts against one walk and just absolutely decimating that Yankees lineup. And look, perhaps Justin Verlander did not have traditionally speaking, the prime that either Scherzer or Verlander did. But truth be told, Buster, at 39 years old, 25 months removed from Tommy John surgery, Justin Verlander is in his prime right now. He has been the best pitcher in baseball since he was traded to Houston. He's got a 2.26 ERA over that time, more than seven times as many strikeouts as walks. This is a p- p- pitcher, Buster, with 244 regular season wins. I would not Put it past him to get to 300 the way that he's throwing right now, and I think he could easily surpass 37 stri- uh, 3700 career strikeouts and get to fifth on the all-time list. Like I've always wondered what it was like to watch Nolan Ryan pitch late in his career, but the numbers aren't close. Verlander's way better. The better comparison for uh, no uh, for Justin Verlander is not Nolan Ryan; it's Tom Brady.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah, I, I and I told Eduardo about how you know working on an E sixty a decade ago on Verlander he talked about how Nolan Ryan was his was his idol. This is a decade ago, and he's saying mm. he loved the fact that you know he loved Nolan Ryan because he pitched as a power pitcher into his mid forties, and I think that's uh, it's a it's a rare trajectory, and I think Verlander will be the second guy to do that behind Nolan mm. Ryan. I also. Uh, a reference to him I always enjoy watching the post game interviews because you get a sense of, of of you know when when players lose because you get a sense of their personality and what's always always struck me was when verlander who uh, you would agree with me like the body language the way he lives mm-hmm. his life heck he asked out Kate Upton right why up marry <laughs> he he does not lack for confidence but I've seen him time and again after he loses he completely owns it and there's a great humility uh, beneath that great competitor Eduardo I had to talk about that uh, he he is a unique uh, I, I think player in terms of both having that confidence but on the other hand also understanding what he doesn't know and what he needs to improve all right last one for you uh, about baseball's playoff format I waited into this the other day in social media and I was just shocked at the fervor over this topic uh, about the format And as you know, it's been much discussed, especially by Braves, Mets, and Dodgers fans. Mm -hmm. uh, And the common common denominator there being those
5: teams have all been eliminated. (laughs) So I'll put some numbers to this, and then you and I can have a quick discussion about whether or not there is a way that we can improve the postseason format. But I think the conventional wisdom would suggest that very rarely in baseball do the two best teams meet in the World Series because of all of the flukiness of baseball. So I went back and I looked, Buster. So since 1995, which is baseball's wild card era, there have been four instances, four, in which the best team in each league by record met in the World Series. My assumption was that it happened way more frequently in all the other leagues. Not so fast, my friend. It's only happened five times in the NFL during that span, six times in the NBA during that span, and only once in the NHL during that span. So when the 64-win Suns, you know, choke away a series to the Mavericks, it's, oh, look at Chris Paul. And when the 13-win Packers lose at home to the 49ers, it's, oh, look at Aaron Rodgers. But when the Dodgers, the 111-win Dodgers lose to the Padres, it's the baseball playoff format is off. Like, this strikes me just as something that people like pointing out using anecdotal evidence to talk badly about baseball. It is not to say... The baseball's postseason format could not be improved. I actually kind of like the ideas that you put forth. It is just to say, it is happening in every single sport. If you're going to do a tournament, if you're going to do the tournament format the way that we have it, this is just going to happen. And baseball is not unique in that space.
1: Yeah. So I, I oftentimes because I'm old and I have two older kids, I'll, I'll you know sort of fall back on my experience as a parent. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I'll do in, in a lot of cases to bypass complaining is to put the choice in front of the, the one of my kids. OK, mm-hmm. you choose. And then that way you can't complain. And that's what I sort of went to the other day with the suggestion of the baseball playoff format to make clear to the fans of the Dodgers, the Braves or any one of these one or two seats. Just ask the teams if they want the days off. Yeah. Right. Do, do you want the buy or not? Oh, yeah. You'll take the buy every time. Yes. Like 100 times out of 100, these teams that have a choice will always take the bye. So this whole rest versus rust conversation, I'm sick of it. I got to tell you, uh, Embo, what about you?
5: 100 times, Buster, not 100 times, a million times out of a million times, you are electing to win a playoff series if you're, if you're electing for the rest. That yes. is the equivalent of it. The equivalent is that you have already won a playoff series. It makes no sense in the world. To me, how honestly, how anyone could see a different. I love the idea of sort of sneaking in there that you can pick your opponent. I think it'd be really good for TV. The way, something that you floated. How much I fun also would kinda, that be? Oh, uh, it would be. I mean, imagine Sports Center that night when you have—I don't know—you have Rob Manfred with the, you know, with the two managers of the teams or whatever, and you're picking a card up, and all of a sudden, like, oh, we want Houston, we want Tampa, we want Toronto, whatever. That is good TV and would be great for baseball. I also kind of like the idea the way that the KBO does it. Where you give the, the team with the better record uh, two chances to win one game, and if you're the team with the worst record, you have uh, two chances to win two games. You have to do it that way. That's another uh, you know sort of format tweak that I've heard and like. But I think the idea of a paper, like a, an event on ESPN with Rob Manfred and all the teams, and you're picking who you play, will be one of the coolest things in the world.
1: Yeah. I uh, can you, you know, and I'm sure Brian Cashman and the other GMs would
5: not vote for that. <laughs> they go. see it all the time with the NBA draft lottery. You send a representative, they pick the card up, and everyone claps and smiles and whatnot. Baseball would, would make a million dollars, make a billion dollars doing this idea. I think you should, I think you should trademark it and make it your thing.
1: A 100%.
5: All right. Good to talk
1: with you. Later, man.
0: Bleacher Tweets.
4: All right, Buster, it is time for Bleacher Tweets. As always, Bleacher Tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the ones fans deserve. Our first tweet comes from Jeff. Jeff, I don't know how to say your last name. I'm really sorry. Uh, Request for more conspiracy theory Bleacher Tweets. Given the recent (laughs) cheating scandals in other sports, fishing poker, etc. Does MLB need to worry about Jose Altuve learning more discreet ways of receiving buzz from the chess world?
1: All right. So you know what that's a reference to or a suggestion, right?
4: Sarah? <laughs> yeah. Have you well,
1: read about this? Yeah. Okay. Or, and also, no, 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 no. I'm mixing up my, my scandals. Isn't this one, uh, where there was an anal, uh, buzzer of some kind? I think that, but that was in uh, poker, right? That was
4: poker. Yeah, that one was the poker one. Yeah, that's,
1: oh man, how about that? Yeah, no, Jose Altuve is not doing that, but I appreciate the sense of humor.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our next tweet comes from Debbie Gammons-Brown. I always prefer that my Red Sox are in the playoff mix, but are there other fans out there that really enjoy watching October baseball without the need for Pet Mobismo? Or is it just me and Alex Cora? Great question, Debbie. <laughs> I,
1: I, I do think there are some fans who enjoy I love it. Like, I love the, ga- the days where there are multiple games, where there's a lot of pressure. Saturday was so much fun when you went into that day with three teams potentially facing an elimination game. That was cool.
4: Our last one comes from Mitchell, Tigers of Detroit. Do you think the reason the Astros low-balled Correa was to clear the path for Jeremy Pena to the shortstop of the future?
1: I think they were open to having Correa back but only at their price. Um you know, I believe that uh that you know, we talk about the Astros and why do they continue to be successful? That starts with their owner Jim Crane, right? Who through the years has done things. I as I've said on the podcast, I can't stand the tanking. I don't think he handled the science dealing scandal very well. In the spring, the back and forth between he and Brian Cashman was not <laughs> was not a, I don't think a good thing for either. Good luck for either one of them. But I would say this, he knows how to run a franchise and what he has made clear to his players up and down it that I'm not signing a player to more than six years. So they had a, you know, a a good offer, I think, in in terms of annual value for Correa. It's not as much as Correa is going to get. And they were comfortable moving on to another guy. Uh, He has told players on that team he's not going to offer anybody more than six years. It's a system that seems to be working for him
4: all right that's it for bleacher tweets be sure to tweet us using hashtag bleacher tweets with all of your conspiracy and baseball thoughts thanks everyone
1: (laughs) all right that's it for today my thanks to sarah eduardo hembo sarah and taylor have a great day everybody thanks for listening stay safe and remember hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day